Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 5, 1 through 17. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of, God, of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. At the same time, Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked them this, what are the names of the men who are building this building? But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius, and then an answer to be returned by letter concerning it. This is a copy of the letter that Tatani, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors who were in the province beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. Be it known that the king that we went to, the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, it is being built with the huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names. For your information, that we might write down the names of their leaders. And this was their reply to us. We are the servants of the God of the heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this house and carried away the people of Babylonia, However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, Cyrus the king made a decree that this house of God should be rebuilt. And the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought into the temple of Babylon, these Cyrus the king took out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered to one whose name was Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor, and he said to him, Take the vessels and go put them in the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its site. Then Sheshbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God that is in Jerusalem, and from that time until now it has been in the building, and it is not yet finished. Therefore, if it seems good to the king, let search be made in the royal archives there in Babylon to see whether a decree was issued by Cyrus the king for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in this matter. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Justin, and I am the lead pastor here at the church. If you are a visitor this morning, we are currently studying this ancient book of Ezra from the Old Testament. Ezra is the historical account of the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after its destruction by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. As we've learned over the past few weeks, though God gave them this mission and he commanded them to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, this undertaking was not going to be an easy one. It was in itself an incredibly difficult 
task. It was laborious. But on top of just building a temple, that's a big job. On top of that, they had all kind of adversaries in the city who were doing everything they could to frustrate their plans, to slow down the building or stop the building. These adversaries had tried all kind of different tactics. First, they tried to join them to get them off mission. Then they bribed counselors to come against them and made them afraid to build. Then they sent a letter to the king to get him to tell them to stop the, the work that they were doing. And by the end of chapter four, chapter four ended like this. It said, we are, quote, in the second year of King Darius, which means they are 16 years into this construction project. And here's how it ended, quote, the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, All right? So this construction project has been going on 16 years and now it stopped. That's how we ended in chapter four. It seems like the adversaries have won. It seems like the strength of men has failed. It seems like God's people have called it quits. They've let their discouragement and constant animosity against them. They've just said, you know what? It's too much. We're done. Now, here's the question I want us to answer, ask and answer this morning. What does God do when his people get off mission? What does God do when his people say, I'm, I've had enough? What does God do when his people tap out? What does God do? Now, we're gonna see what, what God does and then hopefully we're gonna see how the people respond so that we know when God does what God does, we know how we should respond to that work as well. That's where we're going this morning. So let me pray. Let me pray for us and we can get into it. Father, uh, first off, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for what your word does, what your word is, how your word is meant to affect us and change us and strengthen us and rebuke us and correct us. And I pray that we would have hearts um, that can receive it. We can have hearts that respond rightly to your word. I ask that your spirit would lead and guide me, that you would think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. I ask that your word would come through me clean, directly, clearly, and that your people would hear your voice. Father, your people need direction. They need correction. They need strengthening. They need faith. And, and you give that to them through your word. And so I ask that you would do that this morning for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, I said, amen. All right, open up your Bibles. We have kind of a lot of work to do this morning. You saw that's a long, long chapter, but we got more work than just this chapter to do. Let's look at chapter five, verse one. Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. All right, in one sense, we ask the question, what does God do when his people step away from him, when his people get tired, when his people get off mission? What God does is God sends his word through his prophets or through his men. All right, that's what he does. God sends his word. Now, okay, let's just all go home. That's what God does. No, we're not just gonna go home because 
What's interesting is you read 5.1, and then 5.2, the people respond and get back to work. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of want to know the rest of the story, like, right? It's like, kids are being disobedient, dad says something, kids are now obedient. I'm like, whoa, whoa, what happened there? What was said? What was said? I want to know what was said. Well, it's interesting because, and I bet most of us probably haven't studied the Old Testament in this type of detail, but Ezra chapter five, verse one, is kind of like a hyperlinked text. You read a hyperlinked text, you know, you, you go, you, you, what, what that, whatever it says, you click on that link and it brings you someplace else that gives you the backstory, right? Well, Ezra 5, 1 says, oh, yeah, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah came and said some things. <laughs> we can click on those texts and we can go to the book that bears their name, the minor prophets of Haggai and Zechariah, Zechariah, and we can actually read what they said to the people of God at this exact moment in time. And that's what we are going to do this morning. So I want us, if you have your app, you can open it. You have your Bible, flip over to Haggai. Now Haggai and Zechariah are both prophets. They were sent by God to declare his, his word to his people. But what's interesting, when you read them, they're, they're ministering at the same time, but they're totally different from one another. It's so cool how God uses the personalities of men in very distinct ways to declare his word. Haggai has got to be an eight on the Enneagram. The guy is a straight shooter. He's a straight talker. He's a black and white thinker. And he comes out with haymakers, okay? While Zechariah, you read Zechariah, and Zechariah is this flowery visionary. Half the time, you don't know what he's talking about because he's writing things that are actually prefiguring Christ way down in, uh, way down in the future. Now, the entire book of Haggai, it's only two chapters. And it's interesting. It took place over four months of his life, okay? So what's going on is this guy has a ministry. He's a prophet. That's what he does. He's prophesying all the time, but only four months of his ministry gets recorded for us. Only two chapters, really just a couple sermons get recorded for us. That God took this man and during this short season, turned this man into an absolute lion. Let's turn our Bibles there and look at the Look to the book that bears his name and see what God told him to say. We're going to go Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. We've got it up here as well. Look, in the second year of Darius the king. Remember how chapter 4 ended? In the second year of Darius the king. Same time here. I know it's weird because it, they're in different places in your Bible. They're not back to back, okay? They're categorized together by type, not necessarily chronological, okay? So in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, he's the governor of, it, of Jerusalem, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Here are the three Old Testament offices. You have the prophets, you have the priests, you have the king. They all have different jobs to do. They all are meant to work under the lordship of Christ, okay? Or the king's coming in the later chapter. We have the prophets and the priests and the governor, which is the, 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 the civil magistrate, okay? Who works under the king. This happens here 
in a very specific time. It's literally August 29th, the second year of King Darius, and the, and the word of the Lord comes to Haggai, and the word of the Lord comes to him specifically for the governor and for the high priest, okay? He's got words to say to the civil authority, and he's got words to say to the pastors, okay, to the priests over it. And God's word is coming to both of these groups of people. Now, let me remind us, what were the people doing? The people had stopped working, right? They'd stopped working on the house. That's where things were. They had stopped working because it was, it gotten hard, right? It gotten difficult. They had a lot of adversaries coming against them. So we might, in our day and age, expect a pep talk here. In our day and age, we're going to expect, you know, some therapeutic language. Man, I know, you know, you, it's been a traumatic experience for you. You experienced a lot of trauma, a lot of difficulty. We're going to expect flowery language. It's just kind of pump, pumps them up, right? My daughter yesterday, <laughs> she, she played her first uh, basketball tournament. She's had a lot of games, but she's played her first basketball tournament. And this, this is a traveling type of tournament. She's not on a traveling team. And first game, they lost, I think the correct score was 32 to one. It was brutal to watch. Brutal to watch. Never experienced full court press before. The, the girls were just like, what's happening to us right now? Right? After the game, wasn't much we could say. Girls, you tried hard. Good job, right? There wasn't much we could say to them. The people are in a, a period, a moment of time like that. They have failed. They have gotten off mission. What's God going to say to them? What's God going to say to them? Well, I want you to look at verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, whoa, say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. This is what he says. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Ooh, dang. It's getting personal. Remember the people stopped working on the house of God and they went and started working on their own homes and they've built their homes out. They've got fancy paneled houses and the work of God has stopped on the temple and now God is calling them out for working on their mission rather than his mission. Now what's he say? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, verse five, consider your ways. Better think about it. Better check yourself. You have sown much and harvested little. What, what? You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have a fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag full of holes. Verse seven, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Okay, God is stepping in to this situation and he's kind of throwing haymakers, right? He's not petting them. It's been really difficult, 16 years of hard work. I know it's hard. I know it's been hard. You did the best you could. I mean, the adversaries, what could you do? No, he's like, oh, but you live in a nice house. Oh, you haven't stopped working. You're just working on your thing, not my thing. He comes in bringing heat. 
Now, let me just remind you, we got to get inside this because we got to see also what's going on in the people's hearts. See, when we disobey God, no matter what the reason, things got hard, things got difficult, I got busy at work, I'm in a tough season, no matter what it is, when we disobey God, our disobedience is either coming from a hard heart or if we've already received a new heart from the Lord through the gospel, then our disobedience and rebellion begins to work on that new heart and turn it into a heart of stone again. There is no neutral ground on this planet. You are either being pulled towards God or away from God. Your heart is either being hardened or it's being softened. There is no neutral ground where we can stop and just say, I'm there. The problem here isn't the circumstances, isn't the difficulty. The prophet can look at him and say, you stopped working because your heart has gotten hard. Now let me show you this. This is... We're going to see this in several different places. This is what God speaks to Zechariah. And he's telling them, you know what got you in this place? You know what got you here? Got your family sent to Babylon 70 years ago? You know what got you here? This is what he says. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Okay, stop. God's word came to his people before they were brought off into Babylon. And he's saying, obey the law. Render true judgments. Show kindness. Show mercy. Obey the law of God, right? That's what love looks like. Obey the law of God. How do the people, how did their grandparents and parents, how did they receive that word? How did they receive what they were to do? Let's keep reading. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Look at this sentence. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, so because of them making their hearts diamond hard, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called, and they would not hear, that's what God says, as I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear. So this is what he's saying. He spoke his word to them. I ain't trying to hear that. That's what the, that was their response. They shut their ears to it. They had diamond hard hearts, would not receive the word of God. Then God sends Nebuchadnezzar to carry them off into Babylon. As Nebuchadnezzar comes rushing in, what do the people do? God save us. God's like, I ain't trying to hear that. Their disobedience got them into Babylonian exile. Them making their hearts rock hard, unable to listen and obey his words. Now listen, this is a universal human reality. Paul says in Ephesians chapter four, says this, verse 17, 
to 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. That means unbelievers, pagans. Listen, in the futility of their mind, not having a Christian worldview, not thinking biblically about things. They are darkened in their understanding. They have a cloud in their mind when it comes to God, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to what's right, when it comes to the way the world should actually work with Jesus as the king. They're darkened in their understanding. Look, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, spiritual ignorance, due to what? Their hardness of heart. They have become callous, become callous. How have they become callous? Given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. See, there's this thing that we are born with hard hearts and we must turn to Christ to have new hearts put in us. But then if we have a new heart and we give ourselves over to sensuality, we give ourselves over to lawlessness and breaking commandments and sinning, then our heart begins to get calloused again. Our heart begins to get hard again. That does not mean you can lose your salvation, but it does mean you can lose your awareness of God's salvation, awareness of his presence, that you can be disobedient to him, and you can still bring some kind of judgment upon your life. So what does God do? When, we, when our heart starts getting hard again, when we start getting rebellious again or disobedient again, what does God do? Well, here's a principle that is all over Scripture. Soft, smooth words often produce hard hearts. And hard, sharp words often produce soft hearts. That's what the prophets come to do. Jeremiah 23, 29 says this. This is what God says. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. And like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. God is saying, literally, his word brings the heat. His word is like fire. Fire is meant to melt things. It's meant to purify things, right? That's what fire does. We come into God's presence and he is a consuming fire and his word is meant to consume some things in us. Our sins are meant to be burned up. We're meant to be purified. And he says, my word is like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. That God's word is meant to smash our idols. We're told this again in the New Testament in a different way in Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That the word of God is a sword, a two-edged scalpel that's meant to get between our eyes and into our mind. It's meant to get into our heart. It's not meant to, it's living and active. That means it's both surgeon and scalpel. It's meant as our heart starts to get hard, as we start getting calluses through our own disobedience, our own hard-heartedness or our own ignorance, that the word of God is meant to come and open us up 
and peel off those layers of heart of hardness. Peel off those calluses and get down to our heart of hearts because out of the heart flow the issues of life. We live from our heart. But many people today cannot handle this type of speaking. They say, we don't need hard words, pastor. By the way, isn't Jesus gentle and lowly? Isn't Jesus kind and always patient with us in our sin? Yes, he is. You are correct. Jesus is all of those things. But his kindness has a purpose. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, to change, to obedience. And if we do not repent, we do not change, we do not receive his word, then we are presuming upon the kindness of Jesus. And here's what God says about that. Romans chapter two, verses four through five. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? So I can just sin. I can just live however I want because he's patient. He's kind. He's forgiving. Doesn't really matter how I live. Oh, you're presuming on his kindness? Look what he says. Not knowing that God's kindness, we could say his patience, his forgiveness is meant to lead us to repentance, to change, to becoming a different type of person. His kindness isn't the parent that doesn't care how his children behave. Just sitting back going, I know she's still smacking people. I can't help it, but I'm kind and I love them. No, his kindness is meant to create a change in behavior, right? Now, if you don't change, listen, look at this. But because of your hard and impenitent, that means unrepentant hearts, you are, look at this, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Those are hard words. Those hard words are meant to do what? Cause us to consider our ways, cause us to check our heart, check ourselves and repent. Now it's interesting, Jesus does this very thing. Many of us, have a picture of Jesus that does not match up with the scriptures. We have a picture of Jesus who the only thing he ever does is gentle and lowly. Well, that's not the real Jesus. Think about this. Jesus lives the perfect life, right? The life that we all fail to live. He obeyed God absolutely perfectly. He, he, he says things that people, while he's doing that, by the way, that they're trying to throw, they try to throw him off the cliff a couple times. They're like, he doesn't make people too happy, right? He dies the substitutionary death in our place for our sins. What happened to all of his apostles at this moment? God struck the shepherd and the sheep scattered. That's a prophecy in Zechariah, by the way. God struck the, sheep, uh, the shepherd and the sheep scattered, right? They all run away. Now, what does Jesus Christ three days later, gets up from the grave. I knew what I was doing all along. God knew what he's doing all along. God was always in control. He was never off the throne. Everything was completely ordained by him. I just defeated death, hell, and the grave. I'm coming back to get my 
I'm coming back to get my boys, right? His, his 11 apostles. Where are they? Where are they? What are they doing? Hiding. This is what he says to them. Now, what do you think? How is Jesus going to respond to them? <laughs> like, you would think he's going to be like super empathetic and super understanding. I know, guys, nobody's ever risen from the dead before. You couldn't expect me to do that. Except for the fact that I told you several times I was going to do that. Right? He could have been real empathetic. Oh, it's so hard to believe a man could beat death. I know. Right? Oh, give you guys the benefits. You tried hard, guys. Good work. I mean, you gave up on me. And, you know, right when the, you know, the going got tough, you gave up on me. Right? Look how Jesus responds. Mark chapter 16, 14 to 15. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves and they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is a microcosm of our text today, okay? He shows up to them, he rebukes them they had literally, Mary and some other, they had came and said, we saw the resurrected Jesus. Doubtful. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Never seen that before. They were slow to believe. And he, what does he say? That is your hardness of heart. The apostles still had a hard heart. See, all of us, can get hard hearts at times. We either have a hard heart because we've not turned to Christ or our heart could possibly be getting hard determined by how we are responding to the word of God. So Jesus rebukes them and what happens? His hard words produced soft hearts. They got up from there and obeyed him, went to Jerusalem, waited for the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit fell on them and then what? They got back to work and they turned the world upside down, right? Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus said, first off, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And guess what they did? They obeyed him. They got right back up to work and got busy. Why? Many times the hard words of God are the jackhammer that's meant to break open our hard hearts. Many of us have a Jesus, we worship a Jesus who is a figment of our own imagination. If your Jesus never disagrees with you, if he never rebukes you, if he never convicts you and tells you you were wrong, you lied, you cheated, you stole, you, your anger flashed at your children and you need to go and repent. You lied to your wife and you need to go and repent. You drank too much and you need to repent. You have not been obedient with the finances that God has given you and you've been stealing from God. You need to repent. If your God never says that to you, if he never crosses your will, then you are not serving the real Jesus. You are worshiping an idealized version of yourself. So, what does God say to these 
struggling saints who've just, saints who have just kind of given up and tapped out and they've had enough. He says some pretty hard things. In Haggai verses three through 11, he says, he calls them out for the lavish homes that they have built for themselves while his house still lies in ruin. They have traded his difficult mission for their own comfortable mission. Can you imagine, folks? Can you imagine if your pastors did something like this? Hey, I see that new car you bought. I also see your giving statement. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I'm just saying, do you hear how offensive this is to our American sensibilities? Can God's word do that to you? And if it can't, then your heart is already hardening. If his word doesn't get into the most intimate places of your heart, then you've got something built up. You've already said, Jesus, you can't have this part of me. Yeah, you're, you're Lord of heaven, not really Lord of this. Not my finances, you're not. How often do we put our mission ahead of God's mission? Now, he also called them out for not being satisfied. He says, you're not satisfied with your harvests, with your food, with your drink, with your clothing, and with your wages. He says, you never have enough, do you? He says, you think that's been bad? This is God. This is just God. He's like, I'm going to make it worse. I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and all their labors. Here's the reality. Once you turn away from the creator God and you start looking for creation to satisfy you, money, harvest, homes, children, sex, power, whatever it is, at that moment, you will start to become miserable. Nothing will satisfy you. That is because you were made for God. And only God himself can satisfy your soul. So what God says here is I am going to speed up the process on your disillusionment with creation. So you've been going to money to find identity. You've been going to money to find your happiness. You've been going to your harvest and all these things to find happiness. I'm bringing a drought on that. And what that's gonna do is speed up the process of your disillusionment with creation that can satisfy a hole in your soul that's God-sized. Do you see what God is doing? For their good, he is using this drought, this pandemic, this downturn in the economy, this war to remind them that creation will never satisfy your soul. Only God can do that. And when you turn away from God, you're inviting that kind of destruction into your life, that kind of appetite that is never satisfied into your life. And God in his loving kindness says, I'm gonna send a drought to fast forward this thing, to, make, to wake you up quicker. Now, if you're a Christian, if you have a new heart, 
You should, have you should probably have experienced this a time or two in your life. Before Christ, you used to go and do all kinds of things you wanted to do. You used to go and sin in different ways, and you could go out on a night, you could go out on a bender, you could do whatever you wanted to do, and you could come back, and it wasn't that big of a deal. But as you mature in Christ, and as you've been given a new heart, if you try to go back to those old idols and back to those old way of life, you'll find yourself not being satisfied, not being okay with them anymore, being convicted right away. Now, if you respond to God's word in that moment, you will keep a soft heart. You come back and you repent. But if you ignore him and say, it's no big deal, it's no big deal, it's no big deal, your heart will be getting harder and harder and harder and harder. So here we have God reminding the people, don't go to idols, don't go to creation. Come to me to satisfy your soul. St. Augustine said, Quote, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Now those are some hard words spoken by the prophet Haggai. Could you receive those words? Could you? Or would you say, oh, another domineering man speaking hard words Another guy obsessed with himself. <sighs> Who are you to say that to me? Would those words cut you like a knife and peel back layers of your idolatry that you, you, you're not comfortable with? It hurts. Or would they bounce off you like a ping pong ball off a statue? Well, it's interesting because we see in verses 12 through 15, how the people respond. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor here, and Joshua, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord, their God, had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And all the people went back to work on the house of the Lord their God. They feared God. The word was received. The hard word was received. They repented and got back to work. Then Haggai comes up with one more sermon in chapter two, verses four through five, and he says this. Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest, be strong, all you people of the land. He's telling them, get back to work, but be strong, be strong, be strong. It takes strength and boldness and a spine to do the work of God. You can't cave in when you get back there and things get hard. What else is he telling them to do? Work, <laughs> work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. What a gift of grace. They've been disobedient. They got off mission. They spent all their money on their own house and God sent the hard words of the prophet, but look at his kindness. When they repented, when they responded to his words, my spirit is still right there. Be strong, be strong, be strong. Get back to work, I'm with you. Look at the last thing he says. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Why? Fear not. Why? I am with you. 
So here we see what God does when we get off mission. When we get a walk away from him, we drift away from him. When we get more concerned with our own lives, with our own homes, with our own mission rather than his, he sends prophets, men to declare the word of God to them in order to crack their hearts of stone. And also that happens just when you're reading the word of God. It should be happening when you're reading the word of God unless you're only reading some foo-foo devotional that only speaks soft words to you. Isn't it funny that we, the word of God is living in act sharper than a And we, can I have one with flowers on it? I want one, I need a pink one. As long as it's a pink sword, I don't really care. But many of us avoid the very things in the scripture that God is trying to confront in us. God is trying to change in us. The prophet's job was to declare the word of God. Now listen, they didn't have any control over what the results would be. Isaiah 55, 10 through 11 says this, for as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. Look, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is always doing exactly what he's commanded it to do. And that is usually one of two things. It is softening our hearts or it is hardening our hearts. As we're saying, usually this idol, this thing in my life is, is my precious. It's my precious. God, you can't speak to this. Well, guess what? His word comes to it and we cover it up and we callous it and then we get layer and layer and layer and layer upon callous. So now our heart is getting hard. It's always doing one of two things. Hardening or softening. Sometimes the declared word of God hardens hearts and sometimes it softens them. The Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. That's why most prophets in the scriptures, nobody liked them. They were not well received. Even Jesus, when he spoke the word of God, was not well received and they hated his words. Often it was said, did you know you just offended me? He's like, yep, I know what's in your heart. I know you needed to be offended right there. I've heard it said, if you're one step ahead of people, you're a leader. If you're two steps ahead of your people, you're a visionary leader. And if you're three steps ahead of your people, you're a martyr. Most prophets are at least three steps ahead of the people they are preaching to, and that gets them into all kinds of problems. People are constantly plugging their ears. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. But here we have in Scripture an example of the Word of God smashing through the hard hearts of God's people like a sledgehammer and producing in them the most beautiful fruit of repentance. They actually repented and got back to work. This reminds me of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a very abrasive man. He was a bull in a china shop type of guy. He said a lot of offensive things, a lot of hard things, but God used him and his temperament to spark 
the Protestant Reformation, to change Western civilization. And as Luther was looking back on his life, here's what he wrote about that change. Quote, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word of God did everything. Do you believe that the word of God is that powerful? Flip back to Ezra chapter five, verse two. So the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, they declare the word of God to God's people. And by the way, this Haggai's doing this every single week, every single day. He's preaching the gospel. He's preaching it, preaching it, preaching it, preaching it. And it's just, it's just that ping pong ball bouncing off a statue. And then all of a sudden for four months, the people start repenting. Haggai was probably surprised. Whoa, they're actually, they're actually they've received my words this time. Look at verse two. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now we see here kind of a division of labor. We see what the prophets are supposed to do, what the priests are supposed to, supposed to do, and what the people are supposed to do, and even what the governor and the king is supposed to do. And those things have not changed. This is one of the reasons that God gives the church elders who are to teach and to preach and the the, the saints, the work of the saints is to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians chapter four tells us, right? The people were getting to work. The prophets were right there prophesying to them, all right? Now, this is what I wanna ask you. <clears throat> so far, what has actually changed with their situation? Nothing. What has changed is their hearts towards God. Their hard hearts has been, have been softened through God's hard words. And God then gave them those encouraging words to be strong and get back to work and to fear not, which is basically saying, my plans for you have not changed. Your sinning did not change my mission. You got off course. I'm calling you back. You've responded. Now guess what? Get back to work. You messed up. I have restored you, now get back to work. He is saying to them, and to us by extension, fear God and no one else. Fear God and no one else, because guess what? Even though you've been restored back, your adversaries are still there and they still don't agree with you and they still want to stop your plan and the mission is still as difficult as it ever was. And what do the people do? Okay. They get back to work on the temple. But as progress is being made, and as the walls begin to take shape, once again, adversaries against them arise and try to stop the work. Here's the principle. When you are doing a good work for God, whether building a family or building a business or building a society or building a church, expect opposition, expect Sabotage. <clears throat> Let's look what happens. Verse three. 
At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the province. So this is the Persian governor. Now I want you to, I want to, I want you to understand what this is. This is a civil authority. This is, this is somebody, it's not the king. It's somebody downstream. This is a, a governor of the town. Remember what the people were given. By Cyrus, the king, the people were given a decree to go back and rebuild the temple. So what they're doing is legal. Now we have this new governor who takes, who's taken over the region. It appears he's not aware of the decree by Cyrus. And he looks at these people building a temple to a God who wants to take over the world, basically. And he says, this isn't gonna go well for us. We need to stop this thing. So this governor, this civil authority, right? The civil magistrate, like many of them, He's down line, he's not the king, but he kind of gets too big for his britches. And he's gonna go take things in his own hand. He's gonna stop the work of God, the legal work of God. Now let's go look what he does. Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar, Bozani, and their associates came to them and spoke to them. Thus, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Who says you can do this? This isn't something that is good for society. This isn't something that should be allowed. Who said you can do this? Now look, they also asked him this. Oh, what are the names of the men who are building this building? We want to see your papers. Who says you can do this? I want names. I'm bringing names back to the king. Look at verse five. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews and they did not stop them until the report should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. We're not stopping until the king tells us to stop. That's what he's saying. Because we have a legal right to be here doing this. Now, do you see what's going on? Some governor shows up and tells him to stop work. Now that sounds very familiar to some things that we've experienced in the past couple years. Sounds very familiar to some governor of the state of California coming to John MacArthur and saying, you can't gather anymore. And John, John MacArthur saying, I think I know the First Amendment and I think we're still going to gather. And then them being sued by the governor and then them countersuing the governor and then months or a year or something later, they actually won. And the, and the state of California had to pay them $750,000 for stopping them from gathering. The Bible does not teach that we just blanketly submit to all of our governing authorities. If we have rights in the Constitution and in the amendment, we can rightly appeal to those rights and not disobey God and actually honor God. So here we have some little governor, right, showing up with his pocket protector and wanting to shut down the worship of God. And God's men going, be strong, be strong, be strong. Hmm, work hard, fear not. Maybe God told me that for a reason. No, Poindexter, go back to the king. We have a legal right to be here. Shoo, off you go. Now these Poindexter here actually thinks he's doing something good. He, he apparently doesn't know about this edict that Cyrus gave. Let's keep reading. This is the copy, verse six. This is a copy of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bozani and his associates, the governors of the province, sent to Darius the king. They sent him a report in which was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. 
Be it known to the king that we went to the province of Judah to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones and timber is laid in the walls. Do you see here? They're building this big structure. We should be concerned about this king. Keep reading. This work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. The people of God are obeying God in the midst of difficult circumstances here. This is awesome. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names for your information that we might write down the names of their leaders. We want to make sure these people are in your book. So if you need to call them out, you need to squash them, you can. And this was their reply. Now, here we have another letter written to King Darius. The first one was to get them to stop building the city and the walls around the city. This one is to get them to stop building the temple. Now we're going to have to wait until next week to see Darius's reply. That's in chapter six. But there's two things that I want us to see in this letter that are good takeaways for us. All right? Verse 11. And this was their reply to us. So when they approached the Jews, this is how the Jews responded. They were saying, let me check your papers. Who gave you the right to gather? Who gave you the right to do this? And this is how they responded to them. We are the servants of the God of heaven and the earth. And we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. That was Solomon. There's three things I want us to see here. Number one, the Israelites now remember and know who they are. Or I could say they know whose they are. They say, we are the servants of the God of heaven. We are not Persians. Primarily, we do not serve Cyrus and Darius, even though we are obeying them. We don't serve them. Ultimately, we are owned. We are possessed. Our identity is found in being the servants of God, the God of heaven and earth. This is who we are. First, primarily, we are God's people. We are God's missionary servants. Now listen, God has always wanted a people. He wanted a people who would know him and live under his commandments in his ways so that the surrounding world would know what God is like. And as they live obediently to God, they would push his rulership, his kingdom, his culture out from the center and they would change the whole world. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the whole earth as the waters cover the sea. You see the people here, get it. We have been saved by God. We have been redeemed by God. We've been given a covenant by God. We are God's people. Now, fast forward a few hundred years, the people through the Old Testament, that, that process of we will follow you, we won't follow you. We'll follow you, we won't follow you. It goes ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows. People fail, kingdoms fail, everyone fails. And what does God do? God sends his son. And Jesus puts on flesh and lives the life that we fail to live. He's obedient to God, perfectly obedient to God, dies the death that we, that we deserve, 
sends the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. Why? The Spirit is called the Spirit of adoption. To take sinners and to make them saints. To take enemies and outsiders and make them into his family. That the gospel of Jesus Christ changes our primary identity. We are no longer first Americans. We are no longer first husbands, fathers, whatever. We are first and primary children of the living God. That should change everything about the way that we live our life. We see the people get it. Secondly, they know, first, they know who they are. They know whose they are. Secondly, they know what they're called to do. We are here to rebuild the house of God. That's why we're on this planet, in this generation, in this moment. We should know who we are. Jesus told us, go make disciples, right? Go plant churches. Go renew and change the culture. Go change the city. We have been told to do this. This is why we're here. We are here to build, to make disciples, to build a great church, to plant more churches, and to renew our city. That's why we're here. Third thing we see is verse 12. This is it, last one. But because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the land of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. Now, it's very interesting. When we realize we're here to make disciples, we have enemies that don't want us to. We're here to build churches. We have enemies that don't want us to. We're here to renew the city for the glory of God. We have enemies who don't want us to. It's very easy for us to get proud and to say we're the good guys and those out there are the bad guys. And the problem is with them. Interestingly enough here, we see the people say, they don't blame Nebuchadnezzar. They don't blame the Babylonian army for taking them over. They blame their fathers. They say, our fathers sinned and God did this, right? We are where we are as a culture because Christians, because of Christians' failure to obey God. We've given up ground. We've plugged our ears to the God, to the, to, to the God of scripture. We didn't want scripture to speak to certain areas of our life. We wanted to keep God out of certain things. And I, the, we are where we are today because of the sins of Christians. So there is no looking down on the pagans out there. Look what they're doing. We let them. We gave them our children many times. So the judgment begins at the house of God. We look at our own homes. We look at our own hearts. Now, it's very easy to, to look out in the world and to see red or blue, right? You can see good or bad. You can see all these different things. And that's, there, I don't want to confuse it. There are evil people out there and there are good people out there, right? We should be able to look on the world stage and see that. We can absolutely condemn Putin. We can absolutely condemn what he's doing. He's a tyrant and a thug and he'll be judged by God. We should be condemning those things. But we can't forget that the line of good and evil runs through every one of our human hearts. That we are not without sin. And that we have to start here in our own home, in our own heart, 
and let the word of God come in and judge us and do surgery on us, we can still condemn evil out there. But this, this mindset, this taking ownership of their own, of their father's sins and their own sins, this is what the church of God needs to do. We don't just point the finger. We take ownership of it. I've disobeyed God. I walked away. My father's disobeyed God. And that's what I want to see for us as God's called us to rebuild our city and to build a church here. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word cuts, but it also heals. And so I pray this morning that your word got into some nooks and crannies of our hearts, that you cut where you needed to cut, you perform surgery where you need to perform surgery, and that now the seed of the word of God would produce a harvest of righteousness in each and every one of us, that you would cause us to repent of our sins. We would confess our sins to our spouse, to our children, to you, to our pastors, to our whoever it is that we've sinned against, Lord, that you would produce a change in us, that we would be your people. We would allow you to govern us as if you were king of the universe and king of our heart. We would respond rightly as your people. Father, we trust in your word. We don't trust in the word of a preacher. We don't trust in the words of any man. We trust your word. We want to lean on your word to do all the work. We ask that your word would produce this type of revival and change and reformation work here in our city. Would you do it for your glory and our joy and the joy of our kids, Father? Now, Lord, we, we're just reminded of the goodness of your gospel that you call us to sit down at table with you just like you did with the original 12 disciples and they did not have pure hearts. They did not all have soft hearts. They had hard hearts. They were still sinners. They still were struggling and yet you invited them to a supper and you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this bread is broken and it is my body. And you took the cup and you said, this cup of wine, this is the cup of the new covenant and it's poured out to cover our sins. And you ate that last supper with 12 sinners, Lord. And when we come to your table this morning, you eat it again with hundreds, thousands, millions of sinners across the globe. That you call us in and that you put the righteousness of Christ in us and it's the righteousness of Christ that invites, that, that enables us to come to the table. It's not our own righteousness. So I, I pray that we would sit down or we would take these elements, Father, and we would worship you and we would thank you for the way that you invite us in right where we are through Christ and yet you love us so much you will not leave us where we are and you are constantly at work changing us, sanctifying us, making us more like your son. So we ask that you would do all of this in Jesus' precious name, amen.